Who is the greatest college football team of all time? It's too early to crown this year's Bama squad, but maybe it's the 2001 Miami Hurricanes, who produced 38 NFL players, or the 1972 USC team that became the first to receive every single first place vote in every single poll. What about the 1995 Nebraska team that beat four top 10 teams and didn't win a game by less than 23 points? Further back, there's the 1945 Army squad that had two 1,000-yard rushers, or the 1956 undefeated Oklahoma team that was in the midst of an NCAA record 47-game winning streak. You have to pick one. Sure, those teams are great, but they're not the greatest. The greatest college football team hails from Tennessee. But don't have a heart attack, Bama fans, it's not the Vols. But rather, the 1899 Suwanee Tigers, who after beating five teams in six days on the road, were known simply as the Iron Men. This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Swartout. The story of the Iron Men begins nestled in the mountains of Tennessee. Here to tell it is SI feature editor Steve Rom. In the beautiful rural Tennessee mountains sits the University of the South, also known as Sewanee. A private institution that officially opened its doors to students in 1868, after the Civil War. Sewanee is best known nowadays for their academics, mandatory professional attire to classes, and the breathtaking campus. But far off the radar is their little-known Division III football team, that competes in the Southern Athletic Association. They finished the 2018 campaign with a four and six record. Despite their modest success, you can't properly have a greatest college football team debate without including Sewanee in the discussion, all for what one extraordinary team did in 1899. Before we can describe what the best football team ever was made of, we have to understand what made up the game itself. The first college football game was played between Rutgers and Princeton in 1869, and the rules were very different. You couldn't run with the ball, you could either only kick it or bat it. That's Kent Stevens, historian and curator at the College Football Hall of Fame. The first team to score six goals would win the game. And it was such a rousing success that in 1871, I, think, I don't think there was a single game played. The sport grew slowly in the Northeast, but it wasn't until the 1880s that the game we would recognize today began to take shape. There's a fellow by the name of Walter Camp, who was a Yale player, was able to persuade the rules committee to adopt a whole, whole series of rules. Essentially, it was the line of scrimmage and the down of distances. However, there were still significant differences from the game you sit on your couch and watch today. The forward pass was still decades away from being legal, and the need for only five yards for a first down made for a physical game. Slug, slug, slug your way down the field. And the kicking game was absolutely vital. In 1883, when we finally had college football more like it is now, touchdowns were at four, field goals were at five. College football was dominated early on by the Northeast Ivy League schools, but gradually made its way to the South. The sport that really interested students in the 1880s was baseball. That's Woody Register, a historian at the University of the South. But in 1891, the first football team was organized. 
And while it started out as only an organized club, football quickly rose to the top sport in Sewanee. The students took to it with, with real enthusiasm. But it was a, an amateur kind of operation. Sewanee joined the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association Conference four years later in 1895 as an original member along with Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, John Hopkins, North Carolina, Vanderbilt, and Virginia. In 1898, Sewanee won their first conference championship, going 4-0, 3-0 in the conference. Despite the successful season, head coach J.G. Jane also known as Lady, left for North Carolina, which was common for coaches who often moved around at that time. They were pretty much swamped with applications from you know, former players and at the Northeastern School. Despite the South getting little recognition from the college football writers at the time, Sewanee was a good place for a young head coach to make their start. Jane recommended the Tigers hire fellow Princeton grad Billy Souter, who had finished his playing career just the year before. Billy Souter had just come down from Princeton. That's Mark Webb, the current athletic director for the Sewanee Tigers. He was a strict disciplinarian and apparently could really, really motivate the players. The Sewanee football team featured plenty of returning talent, including a future College Football Hall of Fame halfback. Henry Siebels, he went by the nickname Diddy. Diddy Siebel's fierce runner and also a very wanted kicker. He could punt the ball, you know, a mile high and a mile long. And Siebel's shared the backfield with fullback Orman Simpkins. Siebel's and Suter and others regarded Simpkins as the most talented all-around player on the team. The 21-man team had five law students, four medical students, three theological students, and an average weight of 169 pounds. Sewanee had a head coach, plenty of returning players. Now all they needed were teams to play. Scheduling was a real difficulty in the South. There are very few large cities, and those that are are great distances apart. Sewanee, located in a very rural, mountainous area where getting there might be a bit difficult for teams to play as well. So they would play most of their games on the road. The previous year, the team played four games, and one of those games was against Vanderbilt. And there was some contention about the gate receipts. For that reason, Sewanee didn't play Vanderbilt the next year, but with that meant that we had to make up a lot of gate receipts. It came down to a creative team manager to make a schedule for his highly touted team from the South while maximizing revenue. His name was Luke Lee. Luke Lee was named the manager, but for all practical purposes, as you know, he was the athletic director. 21 years old at the time, but very ambitious and an astute businessman beyond his years. Ambitious he was. Lee proposed a daunting schedule that had never been done and likely will never be replicated again. A 12-game season, including a stretch of five games in six days, from November 9th to November 13th, on the team's trip out to Texas. I probably wouldn't get out of the dean's office now. <laughs> they would laugh me out of there if I suggested that to make revenues for the team. And our football coach uh, would probably laugh at me as well. Despite resistance from the faculty for taking the students out of class for such a long time, 
The schedule was approved by Vice Chancellor Lawton Wiggins, a huge football fan. With that, the Sewanee Tigers attempted to make history. The Tigers started off the highly anticipated season 4-0, defeating Georgia, Georgia Tech, Tennessee, and Southwestern Presbyterian University by a combined score 144-0 with a relatively normal schedule. Boosted by a great start and fully healthy, the Tigers were ready to embark on the 2,500-mile trip that would take them to Texas, through Louisiana, and back to Tennessee. As they prepared for their Pullman car train trip, Souter and Lee were concerned, not about the competition, but about one specific detail of the trip. They were concerned about drinking water from different sources, so they wanted to have a consistent source for the players. They carried, I think, two barrels of this Tremlett Springs water. Now remember, it's 1899. There weren't the same water regulations in those days. The Texas water would be different than the Louisiana water, and they wanted to avoid any outside interference that could derail the trip. Smart thinking. But even with the great planning, there was one slip-up. The shoes didn't make the train trip when they left the station here. And so they had to telegraph uh, back up to the mountain, to Suwannee, and, and have whoever was in the athletic department bring the shoes and put them on the next train, and then they caught up with them. With shoes on their feet, Suwannee made their first stop and took on Texas November 9th, beating them 12-0 behind two touchdowns from Diddy Siebel's. In the Texas game, uh, Diddy Siebel played the whole time with blood streaming down his face. And that became part of his legendary toughness. Diddy earned his tough guy reputation in part because he had no choice. At the time, substitution rules wouldn't have allowed Siebel's to run off the field and bandage up. If you came out of the game, you could not return. No offense, no defense, no nickel and goal line packages. Just 11 on 11 with minimal substitutions. Despite being the second game of the stretch, Texas A&M was the last game added to the Tigers' historic schedule. They were hefty farm boys, and the Sewanee team uh, was, had great difficulty scoring that day. But Sewanee found the end zone twice to escape Texas with a 10-0 win. One of the, the fortunate things about the um, famous road trip was that they played the two toughest teams uh, at the beginning of the road trip. The Tigers made an impression on Texas, leading to the Texas A&M campus newspaper, The Battalion, reporting, the Sewanee Tigers are unmistakably the champions of the South. But not if Louisiana had anything to say about it. At this time, athletic departments were small and resources minimal. But Luke Lee, always ahead of his time, made sure his players were properly taken care of. We did have a trainer, Cal Burroughs, who went on the trip. He took several African-American men with him. And these men were especially skilled at giving rubdowns and massages and treating the injuries and the wounds of the players. Despite African-Americans not being accepted on the football field, years after the trip, many players credited Cal Burroughs, 
an African-American, for keeping them going through the grueling stretch. The next day after the A&M game and a 350-mile overnight train ride, the Sewanee Tigers defeated Tulane 23-0. The beleaguered players then finally took an off day for religious purposes. The team could not play on Sunday. After a day of pious rest, the rejuvenated men went out and stomped LSU 34-0. Miles away in the Smoky Mountains, the Sewanee student body of roughly 326 and faculty were kept in the loop. Luke Lee would telegraph the results back to campus. People in Sewanee had gotten wind of what the newspapers were writing, that this was a historic achievement. And on the sixth day, Sewanee returned to Tennessee to play Ole Miss in the final game of the stretch. Despite the close score, Sewanee easily defeated them 12 to nothing, completing the greatest college football road trip in history. 2,500 miles, five games in six days, and not a point allowed in those games. The men returned to campus as conquering heroes, greeted by their fans. They carried them on this cart, you know, that's normally pulled by horses up to the quad, and they had bonfires, and and it was a, a wonderful time on the mountain. But Sewanee's story wasn't over. After the road trip, the Tigers still had three more games to complete the perfect season. They pummeled Cumberland 71 to nothing, and then had a date 10 days later with the famous John Heisman's Auburn team on Thanksgiving Day. The Auburn game was controversial. Sewanee won 11 to 10, but there, there was some controversy with, with the Tigers down in Auburn. After a controversial call by the referees that rewarded a fumble to Sewanee that Auburn claimed they recovered, the game was called early because of darkness. And despite finally getting scored on, the undefeated season remained intact. Sewanee had only one more obstacle in their way. North Carolina, down in Atlanta, Georgia. Newspaper declared this the championship game in the South. Some football historians even refer to it as the first bowl game ever. The problem with that, that game was scheduled beforehand. So it wasn't like, we have Team A here is very good, Team B over here is pretty good, let's get them together and play. I mean, it was, the game was already scheduled. In a low-scoring affair, Sewanee won 5-0 on a kick by Rex Kilpatrick, and the perfect season was accomplished. I don't care who you're playing, Texas, Texas A&M, Tulane, LSU, Mississippi. They're not the, you know, the Texas, Texas A&M, Tulane's, and LSU's and Mississippi's of the day. I, I don't care about that. These guys made extreme sacrifices to endure this grueling road trip that they did. The writers in the North who often ignored Southern football even took notice. Walter Camp the man who pushed for many rule changes and was ultimately regarded as the father of football, gave Sewanee a nod in the 1900 preseason write-up in the Outing magazine. I do think that this is something that really brought some attention to Southern football. Once they saw that this team won five games in six days, uh, with just how purely physical the game was back then, Southern football, I think it really got its start around that time, and I think Sewanee probably contributed to that. 
Hard to imagine the South not respected as a football region today, but the 1899 Sewanee football team definitely left their mark. So Sewanee remained a powerful team for a decade or more after that. In fact, the Sewanee Tigers won four more Southern championships in the first decade of the 20th century and were a charter team in the SEC formation in 1932. However, Sewanee could not continue to compete with the powerhouse schools and their resources. They never won a conference game after joining the SEC and were outscored 1,163 to 84, perhaps a little payback from the 1899 season. Sewanee eventually stopped rewarding athletic scholarships and their football team disappeared back into the mountains that they sprouted from. But the legacy lives on, thanks to a road trip that resulted in five wins in six days, outscoring the opponent 91 to nothing, something we'll never see again. Planting the 1899 Sewanee Tigers college football lore. Special thanks for this week's episode goes out to guest producer Steve Rom, Kent Stevens, Woody Register, Mark Webb, Larry Majors, the College Football Hall of Fame, and the Suwannee Tigers Athletic Department. If you like the cast, make sure to subscribe. And you can help spread the word by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes. Each review bumps us up the list to put us in front of more people. Or better yet, just tell a friend to give us a listen. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. And as always, for more on the Suwannee Tigers and all the narratives moving the world of sport, log on to SI.com. SI.com.